Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. And once I got up into the ICU and saw her, they had her on a ventilator and she opened her eyes and she almost like made this like look at me like, I'm still here. Like, get this, get this thing off of me. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Carling. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Uh, I don't know. It's been a week. Yeah. On Facebook, my memories said 14 years ago, my status was, is having a sleepover with Michelle. Oh. So we had a sleepover 14 years ago. I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why too. Would Adrian have just been born? No, 14 years ago. You wouldn't have even been pregnant. And I wouldn't have been married yet either. Well, like, we just thought we'd have a fun night. I wonder what we did. Weird. I know. Carling vague well, booking. Well, that's fascinating, right? I did. I did a, a fair share of vague booking fourteen years ago. I know. I look at my statuses now, and I just cringe. I'm like, "What yeah. were you doing?" Like, and then I wanted no more information from myself yeah. back mm-hmm. then. I'm like, "Well, what yeah. was it, Michelle? Like, what is your problem?" Yeah, but I don't know. So, for anybody listening that does vague booking, do your future self a favor. Give some more mm-hmm. detail. More details. And you're not going to know what what was going yeah. on. How's your week? It was okay, I think. Yeah, I just worked. And yesterday at work, our first customer that came in was wearing a Truck U Trudeau hat. Great. Did it say Truck U or did it say yeah, the Yeah, it did. Yeah, it <gasps> did. And then the shirt was something about truckers as well. And then he was saying like, Oh, are you going to report me for wearing this hat and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And he kept trying to like engage us in the conversation. And we're like, nope. And he was like, you know, the bank accounts are being frozen. And I was like, for people who are donating. And I was like, nobody's accounts are frozen for donations. That is not true. Like, show me the proof because that's not true. And yeah, he was just going on. And then he's like, Trump's coming back. You know, he's going to come back and all this stuff. And he's talking about Trump. And then he said, Trump is coming back bigly. And I was what? like, sir, you need what to leave. That? I don't know. Is Trump, people, like, that's a Trump, is, that's a Trump word. Like bigly, like instead of just saying big, they're saying or bigly. Or, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just trying so hard not to engage. But the most ironic part about this was that the whole time he was talking about how he didn't trust the government and how terrible the government is and how they're stealing people's money. But the reason he was there was to get a direct deposit form so the government could give him money. Oh my god. <laughs> I was like Do you not see the irony in this no. entire situation, sir? Like, are you kidding me right now? That's amazing. 
it it was it was I was like this is too much this is too much for 9:30 on a Friday like I'm done for the day I was the amount that I had to bite my tongue yeah to not engage with this person was unbelievable yeah I don't know too much people sass on a the best of days but no my one of my friend's roommates claimed that his bank account was frozen because he made a $75 donation to the trucker mm-hmm. convoy Mm-mm. and I was like that is untrue <laughs> I yeah, don't know you, you cannot provide proof to that but no the only thing that maybe happened was like their account happened to like their maybe their card was compromised or their card was right. frozen and it just happened to be the same time that this was going on you know what I mean like yeah. my account was I had $200 stolen from my account so my card was frozen because it was fraud when when somebody skimmed is that what they call it? skimmed your card yeah what did they buy? They spent $200 at like Nintendo. So my first thought was like, my children did it. <laughs> but yeah. it wasn't them. And I only use my visa. So I've never yeah. ever entered like my debit card information. And my kids don't like go into my wallet and steal my debit card. And the purchases were done out of BC. So it's like, obviously right. it wasn't, wasn't me. You know, who doesn't need $200 stolen out of their bank account is a freaking widow with five kids who's barely getting by. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the last person who needs to be stolen from. And it's been two weeks and I still haven't gotten it back. So that's fun. Why? You like, what's the process? They have to do an investigation and it takes, it takes time. It takes like 10 business days or something. That's a racket. Right? I can't stop saying that now. Now that I know what a racket is, everything is a racket. It's like your favorite word. It is now. I've, instead of absolutely not, now I say racket. (laughs) Like if I'm in line for too long, I'm like, well, this is a racket. (laughs) The amount of ways I find to say it is... that is so funny i'm so glad i could teach you a new word yeah thanks the word of the week (laughs) is racket (laughs) what's going on with you well i had a horrible week i just without getting into too much detail my dad and i own a rental property together it was my condo but then i moved out of it when i married a Mm -hmm. sociopath i rented it out because i bought when the market was too high And Mm. now I can't sell it for what I bare minimum need to sell it for to pay the mortgage off. Mm -hmm. But because he's co-signed, I've been trying to figure out what I need to do. Like, because he died. What, like, what does that Mm -hmm. mean? I should tell somebody I feel. So when I talked to the bank, I called the mortgage center and they were like, oh yeah, you either have to qualify on your own, which I won't, or Mm -hmm. you have to sell it. And I was like, okay, like I genuinely don't want to own this property. I've never wanted to own this property. That's a whole yeah. episode for the Patreon. But yeah, like if I sell it, I'll lose money. What happens? And they were like, well, you just have to cover the loss. And I was like, ma'am, this is a Oh, racket. sure. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. I like Absolutely. I can cover $26,000 of a lot. Like where will this money come from? So I'm trying to navigate that. I say you just walk away. No, I. but they'll come for me. They'll come for me, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who, when, how, what. But I can't just walk away. That's like financial ruin. I know. I know. That's so frustrating. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that's a racket. And that then, is a racket. And then last week in our outro, we talked about the fundraiser that we set up for our past guests and my other friend, Rachel, for her pup Ludo. 
And we raised enough money for all the vet bills. And it was incredible and so helpful because vets are a racket. See, I'm gonna uh, they definitely now. are a racket. But then on Thursday, on Wednesday night, he started not doing so well. And she brought him into like the 24-hour emergency vet. And they found over a liter of fluid around his heart. And it ended up like unrelated. He had this surgery which cost $7,000. And then I don't know if it was like the trauma from the surgery sort of like made this. Anyway, they discovered he had cancer and he's only three. Oh my God. The vet was like, listen, um, it's going to be about $5,000 to do this diagnostic testing. They want to do like a CT scan. They want to send the lab, like send it out to labs. They want to do all this stuff. And they said, we're probably going to have to go in through his chest and like do all this stuff. And, you know, then once we confirm it's cancer, then, you know, we would figure out what a treatment would be. But if it's not cancer, then we'd have to do another exploratory surgery. Anyway, it was like minimum another $8,000 just to figure out what was wrong. Yeah. And the vet, and the vet said, it's unlikely that it's not cancer. And because of how much fluid is forming around the heart, like there, there's just not a lot of like the prognosis isn't good. Anyway, so then we had to go put him down. Oh, that's so awful. It was, I like, I don't, anybody who's ever, you know, had to make that decision, it's awful. And then obviously, like, I went with her to support her. And that's so yeah, horrible. I know, like, my whole heart just, like, shattered. It's like my little fur nephew. So that was really awful. Poor pup. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my week. Financial ruin and the loss of an animal. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I need to go beat up a 13-year-old. Why? Because Adrian got beat up at school. Are you kidding me? Why are I you know. telling me this as we record? Because you've had a lot going on and I didn't want to bother you. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's a racket. <laughs> what happened? So, uh, I don't know. This kid, Adrian went to go out to get a drink of water at the water fountain. And this kid pushed him from behind into the water fountain and then, like, started punching him in the in the ribs and, just like, like, threw him on the ground. Problem. Your kid just needed no. some water. No, I guess this kid had been saying some, like... Uh, homophobic slurs <gasps> to him oh, and kind of got his sight or them and kind of got his sights on them and decided that this was going to be the kid and I spoke to someone I know who I guess knows this kid and she's like oh yeah this kid is he fights he gets you know he finds kids who he thinks are weak and just like fights. who hurt this kid this is what I, I always know. wonder. Like kids, yeah. are, you're not born a bully. Mm -hmm. So like, what? So what? What? Who? How are we handling this? <laughs> For legal reasons, we're only going to talk to the authorities. But yeah, yeah. So I had to go to the school and pick them up and bring Adrian home because they were in a lot of pain from getting yeah. beat up. Yeah. And talked to the school and the school said that they are, you know, looking into it. There wasn't anybody in the hallway when it happened. So, but they do believe Adrian. Um, and I think it's because this kid is known to be yeah. uh, 
a bully and beat other kids up, right? I'm so shocked that the school doesn't have cameras in the hallway. True, yeah. I was thinking about that too. I am just waiting to see what the school is going to do. And if they don't do what I think they should do, then we're going to have to take it into our own hands. <laughs> yeah, that's unreal. Yeah, it wasn't great. I was pretty upset. We've had great weeks. We have. This is just great. We're living the dream. You know, I was thinking about this. I was like, literally everybody I know that's our age is going through crap right now, I feel. What's going on? I don't know. It's like a millennial curse. Like, we're all just cursed to... retrograde? I don't know. Like, there's something going on. Everyone is just having a hard time, and it sucks. Hey, Siri. Mm -hmm. Is Mercury, Mercury in retrograde? Oh, and then one of them says, no, something else must be bumming you out. <laughs> oh, great. Well, not till May Siri 10. is so cash. She's so cash. You're like, hey, Siri. She's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. She's got mm-hmm. just a bit of stats. Yeah. <laughs> like, Amazing. girl, I was resting, but if you need something, <laughs> I guess go I ahead. Well, the whole world, everything happening in Ukraine. And oh, God. We just, this is too much. It's a racket. It's a racket for sure. (laughs) And I, you know, I wish I could say that this episode coming up is going to be uplifting, but I do think we need to issue a trigger warning that this episode deals with suicide and attempted suicide. And I think that everybody, given that we're all having this like collective, really crappy week or month or time, you know, like or life. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> if today is not the day where you are in a headspace to to listen to this episode, you know, keep it downloaded, but listen to it when you're in a better headspace or yes, absolutely. You know, just make sure that you have a plan to reach out to somebody and connect and have a meaningful connection with somebody after you've listened to it. Yeah. Or just send us a DM and we'll chat with you. Yeah, this episode was so incredible and Denise is amazing, but it was, it's a tough topic. It really is. Yeah, but she's amazing. She's, it was great chatting with it her. It feels like terrible timing now to go from trigger warning into y'all should sign up for our Patreon, but I feel <laughs> if everything's out of whack, so is our intro. Sometimes that's just the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What is our Patreon? It is a monthly subscription, a way to support the show and the work that we do. And it's as for as little as $5, you can have instant access to episodes that we will never have on the main feed. We put out two episodes a month. Yeah. And we have over 50 episodes now. I know. I think this week is going to be 52. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Lots of things going on over there. Lots of crazy stories. Lots of personal stuff. Uh, talk about my story of losing my husband, Carling's story of marrying a crazy person. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So you just go to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and sign up. Yeah, do it. Do it. Double dog dare you. Oh, that, <laughs> that is a threat. All right. Well, this is a long intro, so let's get into our episode. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye. Hello, Denise. How are you? I'm doing very good, thanks. 
Good. We were just talking before we officially started that you're in sunny Florida and we're in freezing snowstorm Canada. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's very sunny today. I I know my husband just left to go golf and our weather's been so up and down. Like one day it's like really, really cold for us where, you know, northerners are wearing like tank tops and Floridians (laughs) are like bundled up. Yeah, but, and then it's like super sunny and hot, like up in the 80s the next day. It's super oh weird. Oh my gosh! Wow, that sounds yeah. That's that sounds like us, except it's never sunny and hot. It's just like less cold or very cold. <laughs> yeah, basically. but I did wear shorts the other day. It was above zero, and I was not missing out on an opportunity to stand outside in shorts. Oh, there you go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Above zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get um, spoiled here every once in a while. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we are so excited to talk to you. We in we sort of were chatting a while ago, but then with my dad getting sick and passing away, like it just seems like we've been chatting forever. So I'm glad that we finally were able to schedule a time that worked for all of us. Yes, and I'm so sorry to hear about the passing of your father. That that was hit, you know, me close to home because I just lost my dad in November. So like I really oh, felt for you. Yeah. I know. I know how that feels. Yeah, it's like a wild it yeah, I don't know. Like everybody's parent dies, but it just hits different than you expected, I think. That's been my experience. Exactly. You're just never really prepared to get that phone call or, you know, come to terms where, you know, you you've lost somebody that you've loved. Yeah. So I would love it if we have you introduce yourself, tell us like a little bit about you and then and then we'll get into your story. Okay, great. Well, my name's Denise. I live in Tampa Bay, Florida. I was born and raised here. I haven't really traveled to too many different places, but my whole life, I'm first generation American. My parents uh, immigrated from Venezuela, born and raised here. So my whole education was that I wanted to go to medical school. So I worked really hard doing that. And then my life kind of started taking big, big turns in college and then kind of got me to where I am now as an adult. So we'll be getting into that shortly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask, how old are you? I actually just turned 30 last week. Oh my God. Happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you. So we found you on TikTok and your video just like hit us like a ton of bricks because it deals with suicide and mental health awareness. And yeah, we just like had to reach out and see about having a conversation with you and hearing your story. So I guess wherever you want to start with your story, let's get into it. Alrighty, sounds good. So I guess I can start with what kind of made me want to share my story so publicly. My mother's suicide attempt happened in September of 2015. And specifically what I remember from that time frame, so that was about like five months after I had graduated from college. I was in the middle of medical school applications, interviews, And all of a sudden, I'm making breakfast one morning, my husband's getting ready, and I get a phone call from, well, I think what first 
started was that I got a text message and it was a group text from my mom to me and my siblings in Spanish. She was kind of saying like, I'm sorry, I can't take this anymore. I tried having a discussion with your father and like always it turned into an argument and I just can't do this anymore. I want you all to know I love you. Please take care of each other. Please look after your younger brother. And she spoke specifically to my older sister to please have her buried next to her first grandchild she lost, which is my older sister, Omarlin's son that she lost to be buried next to him was like her last like final wishes. And like immediately my heart just sank because growing up, I think two or three other times that my mom had attempted, I want to say that there was like probably I think around five years old is when I can refer back to when I noticed she had mental health issues. So so there were a couple times before that, that me and my younger sister, because we were all living together, kind of intervened and, you know, helped emotionally regulate her. And there would be nights where we, my sister and I would sleep with my mom to make sure she wasn't going to do anything. Mm-hmm. And it was just something in our home that We tried speaking, you know, with our parents, like, you know, can we go to therapy? Can we go figure this out? Because a lot of it was my parents' marital issues. Uh My dad uh, traveled a lot, so he wasn't really home too much for work. And so my mom pretty much raised us on her own. And it caused a big strain on their marriage because my dad did have – some periods of infidelity that my mom had come across and my mom always felt trapped and she would tell me, you know, you need to go to school and get an education so you don't ever have to depend on anyone else Mm -hmm. and you won't ever feel trapped. And that's how I feel because I'm not a U.S. citizen at this time. I can't go out and get work because I have four children to care and provide for And I feel very trapped. And that always just, you know, stood with me for as long as I can remember and why I pushed myself so hard, you know, to get a good career that I was passionate about and not, you know, end up in a similar situation. So my dad was just always like, no, we can't go to therapy. I don't want people knowing about it. I don't want Mm -hmm. people knowing that we have problems. Like it was very something that we kind of treaded lightly about and I kind of felt shame from what I can recall like going through the process of like trying to go through the healing and you know processing all the emotions I felt like why I react you know certain ways in different situations so it happened so long ago and I at the time when that all happened after the text message then my sister called me, I want to say maybe like a minute later, like, I think something serious is going on. I'm going to drive over there. You know, I'm really worried. And I immediately just started, you know, grabbing my things because I was two and a half hours away. I lived in Fort Myers at the time. Oh, wow. God. So then they called me again and saying that, you know, my mom, you know, attempted to end her life. She's blue. She's not breathing. She has barely a pulse and that my older sister was the one doing the CPR because she's the one that drove there. My younger brother, who was 17 at the time, and my dad was home, 
both of them like broke the door down and my brother and my dad, you know, got my mom down on the ground and both of them just, I guess, couldn't do CPR. I know my brother doesn't know, but my dad, I don't think he was able to react. He kind of like froze in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so luckily my sister arrived there in enough time and she immediately started the CPR until the paramedics got there. Wow. And how wow. old was your mom at this point? So she was 47 at the time. Oh. And I have a question. So the sort of hesitation to seek mental health support, like therapy, do you think that was like generational or like part of your culture being that they were from Venezuela? I don't know what, what it's like over there, what the perception is. Yes. I think it was a combination of a lot of different things. My parents grew up very Catholic. And so, you know, if you have an issue, you know, pray to God about it was kind of like that type of process. Another component was that in Latin culture, especially my dad, he was very prideful and he his career was professional baseball. So it was kind of public in Venezuela oh, wow. Yeah. versus in the U.S. it wasn't as public. So it was just something where he didn't want information like that getting leaked that, you know his children have issues, his wife has issues, that sort of thing where I don't want to say it was controlling, but I think he felt shame about it and didn't really know how to handle it. And I mean, my dad, he only finished, I think, up to like seventh grade. And then he went into professional baseball. So I mean, that's all he did his entire life. Like he he didn't know what, you know, going to a psychologist was going to be like, or you know, anything other than just baseball. So it was a lot of different variables there. Yeah. Is baseball what brought him to the States or what ended up bringing them here to their youth? I was gonna say here, but we're in Canada, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So he actually was scouted in Venezuela and signed with Toronto Blue Jays. And he was working within the farm system for over 40 years. He was with that team. And then he also did winter ball in Venezuela and some of the other Latin American countries too. Wow. wow. Yeah. So it was definitely a component of like the religious side, the Latin culture where they're like family oriented. We'll figure it out. It it just wasn't something that you normally see, at least from my perspective and my own experience being first generation, especially in the United States, you know, in school, you know, my friends would be like, oh, my parents are divorced. I'm seeing this counselor. And I was always so curious about it because I felt like, you know, it would be nice if I could talk to somebody else about how I felt, you know, that maybe understood it. And so I kind of befriended like a guidance counselor when I was looking at colleges to go to. And even then I was kind of scared to open up about how I felt because of how I grew up. Yeah, I can kind of attest to that. Like, I also grew up Catholic, and a lot of it is just like, go to church, you know, pray about it, you know, bring it all to God, right? And, and it will be fixed. And it's like, exactly, that's not, (laughs) that's not enough, you know, like, that's not, yeah, you, you need to, you need to take action, right? And you need to seek professionals who can help you with these things. I mean, I can't exactly. imagine you being a little kid and having to, you know, 
like you said, sleep with your mom to make sure that she wasn't going to, you know, do anything and having those conversations with her about don't rely on anybody like that's, that's got to affect you in a major way as a, as a child. Yeah, it definitely did. Like I'm just now really getting into the healing work in my 30 years of life of, you know, growing up why those certain experiences are translated now into how I act and Mm -hmm. make choices and even think about things. And it's, it's gone so intense to where, you know, I have physical symptoms of those experiences that Mm -hmm. I'm actively like seeking help on, you know, researching different treatments, therapy programs, and other experts on, you know, what's going to be the best thing that will help me kind of move forward and adapt with the circumstances that I was kind of imprinted with yeah, moving absolutely. forward. You said you had three siblings. Yeah. Where are you in that? So order? I am the second one and then I have my older sister we're six years apart and then my younger sister and my younger brother okay and how old was your younger brother at the time of of he was 17 okay oh wow that's so hard yeah so that was September of his high school year and when we were all trying to adapt to what had just happened We didn't know what was going to happen once, you know, my mom was in intensive care and they finally let us up there. Like the doctors are just going to tell us, you know, the most basic thing because they don't want to give you false expectations or promises because they don't know exactly the amount of time she went without oxygen or if there are any other things underlying that were affecting that, like if she had any other like brain issues. Mm -hmm. And once I got up into the ICU and saw her, they had her on a ventilator and she opened her eyes and she almost like made this like look at me like I'm still here. Like get this get this thing off of me. Like she was just very expressive with her eyes. And then they immediately just sedated her because they wanted her brain to kind of take a break from what had just happened for like inflammation and they just immediately put her into a coma to kind of give her brain some rest and did a bunch of scans and like none of the scans were showing anything other than like I guess a while ago she may have had like what's called a silent stroke in a specific area of her brain but it wasn't enough to kind of produce what we're seeing since she's been out of the hospital. So it can definitely be something that's exaggerated by all of the medication she has had to take, which is something that I spent a lot of time researching, you know, why is she having this symptom or side effect? And like, sometimes it was because of the region of her brain, she had that silent stroke, she was having what's called like extra pyramidal symptoms, where she's kind of like, like her body is kind of making like these, man, I can't think of the word. 
it's not tardive dyskinesia where like her wrists are like bending forward and she's like tense and seizing, but it it was just something that it wasn't very natural. And I was like, is that like from, you know, the brain injury? Is that what we're seeing? And it was actually something from a medication that was causing it because of that part of her brain that wasn't fully active from that silent stroke. So, and that wasn't even anything that was related to you know, her actual suicide attempt. That Wow. And they wouldn't, I wonder if they would have found that had she not done this, like, would they have had reason to do these scans? I mean, I, it's definitely something to think about. The part of her brain that's affected with that silent stroke is dealing with movement. So a lot of like antipsychotic medication will sometimes affect movement or like even expression, like something we call flat affect. So like a lot of the times in my TikTok videos, people are saying, your mom looks depressed. She looks like she doesn't want to be filmed. And really it's all of the medications that she's on that kind of produce that kind of symptom where you're not making any expressions. But she's always laughing. She's always making jokes. And it's just hard to kind of translate that and the little one minute videos I can try and put together of my mom. Yeah. Unless like we have a camera following us around 24 seven and I would just never do something like that. Anyway, yeah. yeah. strap a GoPro to your forehead and <laughs> I know it's like yeah. point of view. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was it like? You guys all got to the hospital. What were those first minutes, days, you know, you didn't know what the plan was. You didn't know what the prognosis was. Right. Right. I I ended up being chose to actually drive with my husband from Fort Myers to uh, St. Pete, which was one of the trauma hospitals that she was at. Okay. And we and I did that because I actually am more like level headed when I'm driving, so I'm like trying to focus. But at the same time, I immediately felt anger. I felt so angry. Yeah. And Part of my anger was, you know, why would she do this? Why would she leave me? It was a lot of that. And then the other part of it was, is it because of my dad? They were fighting almost every day up until that day. And a lot of her mental health issues kind of erupted because of the issues that they had and I would always tell my mom like why can't you guys just get divorced like Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends have divorced parents it's it's okay in the U.S. you know and it was just always like no you know you when you marry someone you stay with them forever that whole Latin culture the Catholic belief all of that you know enveloped into one and it was just anger. And we had to actually drive over this a very popular bridge in Florida called Sunshine Skyway Bridge. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's popularly known, sadly, because some people have jumped off that bridge. Oh, and oh. on that specific day, I'll never forget when I was crossing that bridge, the other side was shut down because somebody was trying to jump off the bridge. Oh my and I looked at my husband. I'm like, is there something in the universe today? Like what's going on? I'm like, what am I about to go into? Yeah. And it didn't matter how many different, you know, science books I read or health classes I did, like nothing ever prepared me for what 
I was about to deal with once I got there. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I arrived, I just sat down next to my siblings. I hugged them. And my dad walked over to me and he just sat next to me and he put his arm around me. And like what I feel is what he felt is shame because of he didn't say a word to me. But like I think he could feel that like some of my anger was being displaced onto him. I think he felt like maybe I blamed him because, you know, further along that I've had conversations with him like, what actually happened that day? What were you guys fighting that, you know, made her shut the door? Yeah. All of those things. And he just would never tell us. So. Oh, geez. What was the staff like at the hospital? Did you feel like there was a stigma or, or I don't, I don't know what the or is, but did you feel like, were they really helpful and supportive or did you feel like a sense of shame about how the staff were? What's funny about that is that, I actually have a lot of the medical knowledge. So like I would ask specific questions where they would be like, how do you know that? Like using certain like verbiage. And so I think they knew that like I was going to be very present and involved in that. So they, I guess, maybe respected me from that sense. I Mm -hmm. didn't feel stigmatized in any way from the hospital staff they were actually very kind and supportive and, you know, did really help not only the situation, but like my siblings too, with like their work and stuff, like they would help with F- FMLA paperwork to for them to be excused and, you know, take the time off and handle the mm-hmm. situation and like sure. give us the options. It wasn't until we left ICU where that level of care kind of changed because she got released to like, I guess, first she got released to like the neurology floor. And that's when things got different. Like, I guess the trauma floor was more like caring, empathetic, but it wasn't until we got moved in different areas of the hospital where they were just like, I felt like they were just brushing us off because they had given us the option, like, uh, do you want to do like inpatient home health or go to rehab or go to like a skilled nursing facility. And at the time, it was just my dad thinking that, oh, I'm about to leave the country in a couple of weeks. I'm only here because this happened and I still need to leave. Like you guys need to figure it out. Uh-huh. And I just didn't feel a lot of support from the um, trying to think of the name of the specific, I think it's a caseworker and giving us more guidance and direction on what we should do because I, at the time, was not living in Tampa. I was still in Fort Myers and I eventually made the decision to move back after a couple of months of this happening to kind of be more involved in the care of my mom. So it was just more stigma that I kind of placed on myself because I didn't know how to tell people what happened. Mm-hmm. I remember I really only told my boss and coworkers at the time and like one or two of my closest friends because I just didn't know how to process it. I was just like, I felt very abandoned and like It just always seemed like I always had something going on in my life, some type of drama, and I felt like everyone around me didn't 
want to hear about it or didn't know how to respond. So I kept it to myself, especially because the first trauma I had was my nephew passing away in my first semester of college. And it was just so sudden how that happened. And like, that was my first real like experience of not processing that I had, you know, depression. I knew I started with it as a child after growing up the way I did, but that I want to say was the first moment that I fully evolved into those symptoms kind of translating into my life that I never really paid attention to until now. So once I had started to tell people, I just didn't feel comfortable telling anyone else about it. And so anytime I took my mom out in public, I would just say, oh, she has a brain injury because they would ask, they would be like, is she okay? Like people will ask. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, she had a stroke. She had a stroke. Like if I had to take her to get her hair done with her hairdresser, they were like, what's wrong? What happened? Because they see that she's not the same as she Mm -hmm. was before. And so I'd be like, oh, she had a stroke because I just felt like I didn't know how to tell people, you know, what happened. And I was also scared what other questions would follow up. Like, how did she do it? Well, what would make her want to do that? And I Mm -hmm. just wasn't prepared to answer answer those questions at the time. Yeah, that's that's fair. When this happened, were were your parents still like heavily involved in the church? No. No. My mom was like, she would go to like a a rosary group Uh and do like Bible readings, but My dad never really was. And that was another thing that I thought may have been a sign for me because once I had gotten into her phone because I, you know, was looking for any piece of information that would tell me or explain like what makes that switch go on in someone's head to finally make that choice. Because at the time I had not struggled with suicidal thinking or anything like that. But like I really wanted to know like my mom was watching my older sister's kids every day while she was at work and like she loved them. Like she was so Mm -hmm. happy around them. Like she was a better grandparent than she was a mother. So like seeing her in that way gave me a lot of joy and I was kind of shocked in a way that what in this particular moment made her want to do that right and some of the things I saw is like she was very concerned about her health so like she was buying all these different vitamins Mm -hmm. she was going to doctor's appointments like getting certain medical exams done she was constantly like saving all kinds of prayer notes even sending them to my dad and more heavily involved in that Mm. than she was ever before. And to me, I'm thinking if somebody's thinking about ending their life, they're not looking at ways to make their life better. They're just like giving up. Like some of the signs that you see online is like they're giving away their personal belongings. They're saying, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. And like my mom was like actively looking at ways to improve her life. Mm -hmm. And on that day in specific, she had a scheduled like hair appointment with her hairdresser that she confirmed her appointment with. So it was something that something happened in that discussion she had with my father that impulsively gave her that choice or 
helped her make the choice that she's always had kind of lingering. See, I can't even talk right now. You're going to have to really edit this. (laughs) You're good. So it it was just something that in the argument with my father that day that kind of turned that switch on in her head as an impulse, like, okay, this is it. I'm doing it. And that's what happened. So it's just, you know, looking at the big picture and then looking at the details, I've tried to always kind of understand and have compassion that my mom had her own traumas, her own pain, and she really didn't know how to process it. And Mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with me. And that's how I had to come to terms with, you know, the choice that she had made to commit suicide. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, oh, go ahead. No, Michelle. you go ahead, Carling. I've got a kid at my door. I'll be right back. Oh. <laughs> I was just going to say so, once she, how long was she in the hospital for? And what did they, what did they tell you? Like, what was going to be her prognosis going forward? So, the first couple days, they told us that they didn't know, you know, if there was brain damage because given the situation of, not knowing the length of time she was without oxygen. Her coma, her Glasgow coma scale scores were good. Her EEGs seemed normal. Her MRI, her CT scan were normal. The only thing that they had told us was that silent stroke from a couple of months ago. And they were just really in the unknown. They said commonly there is brain damage, but it's very uncertain. We won't know until she wakes up. And so I had talked with my family and I said, I think we just need to take her off the ventilator. Like we don't know what we're dealing with. Like at least with the ventilator coming off, if she is able to wake up, that's great. But if not, like we don't know what the whole brain injury situation would be like. Like we knew of the famous case in our area of Terry Shivo she had, I think, like a, a heart attack, and then she was basically in a vegetative state from her brain injury because her heart attack caused her brain to go without oxygen. So after talking with my boss about it, I was like, I really don't know what to do because she was a doctor as well. And she said, given the circumstances, it could be 50-50. And I was also coming from the place that whatever underlying mental health condition was there, I feel like if there is an actual brain injury, which I'm going to assume there is, uh, it's going to be greatly exaggerated now. Right. And so we made the choice to take the ventilator off and then she was breathing on her own. The only thing that was strange is that she was mute for like three days. And when you look at her file, she was on like 12 different medications. So I went one by one looking at all the symptoms and like comparing it with like her already, you know, other diagnosed medical conditions and how they can affect those organs. (laughs) And so I ended up removing a couple of other medications. And then like once I removed one in specific, it was like a seizure one. She started talking. And so from that point on, she was, she also had the 72 hour Baker Act hold, the psychiatric hold, like once she was awake and alert is that's when that started. So she had met with the psychiatrist in the hospital and they were trying to assess her status and they were asking her like, what day is it? How old are you? 
who who are these people? Who's the president? How many days are in the week? Those type of questions to assess like her mental cognition. And did she and do well at those? She did. It was the ones that she really couldn't answer was like, what day is it? Okay. Or, but like she could do like, you know, math and all of those things, but like she didn't know what day it was or what year. And so they were saying, oh, short-term memory is affected. And so once they cleared that hold to where they felt she wasn't a danger to herself, she got moved to like the regular hospital unit. And that's when the recovery started where like she had physical therapy. She had to learn how to walk again because she was only in the coma for about three days, but she was in the trauma floor for, I want to say like a week of intensive care. And then they moved her to neuro and then they moved her to another floor with the psychiatric hold. So overall the hospital stay in that hospital was like two and a half weeks total. So for me, like if she had a severe injury, I felt like it would have required more length of stay at the hospital. Mm -hmm. But like at the time, all we were seeing is the fact that her short-term memory was affected. Like she couldn't remember what we just told her two minutes ago. She knew who we all were. We were scared about how she was going to be around my dad. That's what I was afraid of. So like I told everybody, like since he was still planning on going out of the country, like don't say that around her. I didn't want her to get triggered. Right. But she was fine around my dad too. Like it was just, it was a strange experience to try and put into words today. But like to me, it just felt like I didn't feel like she had a brain injury. I think she had enough of an injury to where it was just affecting her memory, not what we're seeing today. And was your dad really involved in any of that? Or did he sort of take a step back because he was going out of the country and. Yeah. My dad was checked out. Yeah. From that point on, he was just checked out and he was pretty much like, you guys figure it out. I need to go work, which it wasn't strange or out of character for him because all my life he was always all about work. So like anything that dealt with like emotions or serious things, he was just more of like the unavailable emotional apparent figure that we had right so it was really just you and your siblings that were left to make some pretty big decisions exactly and it was mainly just me and my sisters because my brother he's just so young and immature at the time like his mental health started spiraling at the same time he didn't even finish high school no that was the same year like he just was sneaking out of the house, going to see his friends. That's how he was choosing to cope with the situation. Yeah. And so once she left the hospital, did she go right to one of your houses or to a care facility? So once she got released from the hospital, she was released with home health. So she went home to like my where my father and my brother lived. And she had like I want to say three to four visits per week with physical therapy, speech therapy, and a regular nurse that would come and check on her status. And what I remember is the first 
two weeks once I got her enrolled in a psychiatrist that I had to do within like the first week of her being home just because I was so nervous about like, will she do it again? Like, is this something I'm going to have to worry about? As soon as she would take a shower, she would like pass out. And the only thing I could think of is because that's where she attempted. And when I would talk about it with her psychiatrist, they're like, well, it may be triggering, you know, that whole experience again. And so I kind of planted the seed that like we need to move them out of that condo into another place because if she can't communicate that, you know, I remember I did this here because at the time she wasn't talking about it. She would say, right. what's wrong with me? I don't understand. I can't remember things. And I said, mom, you had a stroke. That's why you can't remember things. That's what we always told her for like a good year. Wow. And I just didn't want to remind her that she had the suicide because I didn't know if it was going to trigger something to where she was just going to do it again and again. And that's what I was afraid of because I didn't live in the home at the time. I was still in Fort Myers. And so we all agreed that we weren't going to touch on that subject, but get her into psychiatry and make sure that she's on the right therapies to kind of sustain what we're seeing now, which I want to say the first round of medication We saw some strange side effects with like mood regulation, like she would act like a a child and have like tantrums and then another medication where like she just wouldn't sleep at all and she would like go four days without sleeping of like mania and do odd behaviors like she would just randomly like start poking holes in things, just things that weren't like very common that I saw even in children. So a lot of it was a lot of medication that we were seeing. And thinking back to that whole experience, like she has always been on medication. So like, that's why I've always felt like, what if like she wasn't on medication? What is the actual brain injury? So I can really assess how to help her. Yeah. Uh And it's just been really hard trying to navigate that whole uh, side of things because the last two years is when she lost health insurance because my dad ended up leaving Toronto. And so he lost his benefits, which means she did as well. Uh-huh. And so my sister and I have kind of been paying out of pocket for like her psychiatry visits and her medications. And oh we tried the whole disability route and she couldn't get it at the time because my mom was also never a documented worker in the U.S., That was one of the things she told me growing up, like, don't ever depend on anyone but yourself because I feel trapped. And so because she didn't pay into any Social Security, she couldn't get disability. And so it was just a nightmare from there. And then now with my dad passing, she is eligible to get some kind of benefit. But it's just sad that like my dad had to go in order for us to get help in that situation. You know, yeah, it feels really unfair. Yeah, a lot to unpack. (laughs) No kidding. And that whole medication thing is so complicated because it it takes time to see if it's working, and then if it's not, you've got to wean them off, and then on to something else, and then it takes you know 
couple weeks to see if that's working. Exactly. And that's what we were really seeing a lot as a family system is we were seeing the changes in our mother. We were seeing, you know, trying to process the fact that the suicide happened and this is the result of it. And also seeing how my dad was, you know, processing everything, how we all were processing everything individually. And then also as a family unit was where everything really just spiraled Mm. because we were all processing it very differently. And it was a very tense and difficult situation to tackle. Yeah. Yeah. So coming out of the hospital, was it like your mother couldn't be alone? Like, did she always have to be with somebody? Not necessarily. I just didn't feel comfortable leaving her alone because I didn't know. Did she remember the suicide? Because she never brought it up. She didn't bring it up until I want to say like four months in out of the hospital. She would start asking, did I try and hang myself? And I was like, what would make you say that? And so I would try and like carefully ask questions. But I was also afraid that like I was going to trigger like a full PTSD response. So I would always, you know, call her doctor and be like, is this normal? Like, how do I handle this? But she does fully recall what happened. What she doesn't recall is what prompted her to do it. Like she doesn't ever bring up the part of that she was talking with my dad. She just remembers the part where she sent us a message and did it. And she said that she always says, though, that it was because she was in a lot of pain and that she wanted to see her grandson again. And I guess that kind of like reminds me of kind of the feedback I've gotten from sharing my mom's story on TikTok is that a lot of people claim that me in specific and my family like forced her to stay alive. Mm. And it brings me to this thought like am I because I you know for the first couple weeks I didn't tell her what she did because I didn't want to trigger you know a response I didn't know how to navigate it I didn't want to harm her mental health I wanted her Mm -hmm. to heal but I still confidently stand by in the choices I made and I would still make the same choices I even my sister agrees she would still do the CPR. That's the right thing to do. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my brother just wouldn't have, you know, turned away and been like, okay, we'll wait for the paramedics to get here. Like, right. no, like everyone's initial response is to do something. I don't feel that suicide is the right choice. Right, I think yeah. that suicide is a symptom and that yeah. is something that can be prevented and can be treated. What needs to change is that we feel open enough to discuss it Mm -hmm. because even me recalling back to my first experience with it, I was afraid to talk about it. And the more open we are about it, the more people feel comfortable about sharing their experience and the more people can see and find the help that they need. And I just want to be an example that, you know, if I can go through this, you can totally get through this. There are options, there are choices, there are people, there is a community. I'm not the only one. I've had so many people reach out about their own experiences with themselves, with the parent, being a caregiver. And that alone 
is what jump started my own healing because mm-hmm. I was so focused into school. Then I got focused into taking care of my mom. And then I also became consumed with work. And so I've never once, you know, taken a pause to focus on why am I feeling this way? How how can I be better and process this? And I, for the first time ever, you know, being so open on TikTok kind of helped me get there. And I'm so thankful for the community I've built there in specific of the people that do encourage me and do love seeing how my mom is doing and reach out to me. And it's been truly rewarding. And I would do it over and over again, without a doubt. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And it, like you said, those comments, you know, it's, it's easy for people to sit back and say, you know, you should have done this or you should have done that. And again, it's like, you never know what you're going to do until you're in that situation. And you hope that they never are in that situation. It's such a gray area because so many people feel that that was my mother's choice and we all should have respected that. But my mom wasn't in the right mental health space to make a choice like that, especially with her religious beliefs. My mom would have never done that because Mm -hmm. she even says today, am I still going to get to go to heaven since I did what I did? And so from a religious and cultural standpoint, you have that whole spectrum where, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're thinking about people and what's the way I wanted to say this? Like, it's just, it's not a choice. It really isn't. And I know my mom best, but being that my mom is the one that says that to me, she's like, am I still going to be able to go to heaven? Mm -hmm. Like I reassure her. I'm like, you're still here. You still have a purpose. You're going to help people. Of course, you're going to go to heaven. Yeah. If anyone deserves to go there more, it's her. Yeah. Yes. And I think the church really has like changed some of their stance on it. Like I know we knew somebody in high school whose parent died by suicide and they were Catholic and they didn't, they weren't allowed to have a full Catholic mass for the funeral. But then, you know, like 15 years later, somebody else died by suicide and they were able to have a Catholic yeah. mass. Yeah. You know, like that shifted just in that time frame. And so hopefully, you know, stigmas within religion can start evolving. Well, they're recognizing more that it is a mental illness. And it, like you said, it's not a choice. And someone who is healthy isn't making that choice. It's someone who is experiencing an illness and their brain is telling them the wrong thing. And they're, you know, the chemicals aren't working properly and, you know, like, they're not making this choice. This is a symptom, like you said, of the disease. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the way I always explain it to people is that her brain at the time, because of all of the untreated mental health symptoms and her trauma, all of those things were untreated, finally started to, you know, rapidly produce their symptoms. So Mm -hmm. if the brain has something structurally impairing it like a tumor it's not going to work in the way it should depending on what area of the brain it is so like something that um, controls your movement if there's a tumor there maybe you can't have full movement 
right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with uh, suicide in specific, like that's a symptom of an untreated mental health condition. So if something is affecting the brain from working at 100%, like it's not a choice at that point in the same situation with the tumor. It's not, she's, somebody's not choosing to, you know, not move in the way they want to. There's Uh literally something impairing the brain. And so that's how I look at it. And that's how I try to explain it to people. Like it really isn't a choice. Not only does it affect the person going through it and experiencing the thoughts and feelings, because I too can now speak on that. I had my whole experience this past year on to today. I'm still battling it, but also the people around them. Mm -hmm. It really affects those people as well. So like, yeah. My mom, she wasn't really communicating, you know, I'm depressed, I need to get help. But she was saying it in a different way where like, she would tell me she's upset about, you know, the things that are going on between her and my dad. And I was trying to comfort her and, you know, give her my feedback on the situation, what she should do. But like, the people that choose not to talk about it and really just sit with that, that I can't imagine what those people go through. And so suicide not only affects the person going through it, but also the people around them. Mm -hmm. So that's why we need to break the stigma on the whole situation and openly talk about it and share all the different point of views that have people that have experienced it themselves or secondhand. With my mom's situation, she attempted, she survived, she has a brain injury. So I'm processing the suicide and then also the loss of my mom of who she was before that. And a lot of people have kind of reframed that for me where they're like, well, that wasn't your mom anyways, because she was depressed. And to me, that's not fair either. Because you know, that was the mother I grew up with where I would have to sleep with her and hold her while she's crying and tell her it's going to be okay. And, you know, hide medication from the room that I was scared she was going to take or, Uh you know, hide, Uh you know, knives. Like, that's how I grew up. So to me, that was my mom. Yes, she was depressed, but that was still my mom. And the mom I have today, yes, she's still my mom. But, you know, if something happens to me, like if I were to become paralyzed and I required care on another person, like. I wouldn't have my parents there to help take care of me now. Right. So it's those perspectives that a lot of people don't see with suicide. They're the ones that, you know, have the the person that they lost. And then the ones that survive and openly talk about it. I've met other people that have had several attempts and survive. They're the people that have attempted and still are unhappy that they didn't, you know, follow through in their attempt. There's like so many different little groups within that uh, category, but we need to talk about it. How is your mom today and what level of care does she require? So my mom today is great. When I first got her back where I was fully, you know, caring for her, I had to quit my job for when I got her back. That was after the whole COVID year and she was in the worst condition I'd ever seen. I was just so confused at the symptoms and behavioral changes I saw. And, and that's when that first video I shared on TikTok happened. And 
when she was then, like she wasn't sleeping for days, she would try and escape. She was just very disoriented, very similar to like dementia, Alzheimer's patients. It was just a nightmare at that point. And then finally, we got her on the right medications and routine. And so today, she's great. She has her own room. She comes out and plays with her granddaughter. The only level of care she requires is that we tell her, okay, mom, time to go take a shower. And so she'll go and start getting ready to take a shower. Now she does require that somebody is around still making sure that, you know, she's not forgetting, you know, all the steps in the shower, wash your hair, wash your face, because sometimes with her short term memory, she'll forget what she did. She's like, did I already wash my hair? So it's little things like that. And then also with the medication that she's on, it does kind of affect her movement where she has what's called a shuffling gait. So she kind of walks around like she's shuffling her feet. And so like, I don't want her to slip outside of the shower. So Mm -hmm. it's that type of supervision. But really, my sister, she can step away and not worry that my mom's going to go and harm herself or anyone around her. So she's stable. She just requires cues and then like somebody there to kind of reorient her when she's like, where's your brother? When's your dad coming home? Like those little questions. Yeah. Yeah. And how's it been with your husband? Was he very supportive? Has there been a big impact on your marriage because of all of this? There's definitely been a significant impact because with my husband in specific, we have been together since I was 15. And so he's seen all different versions of me and all of my family trauma. And it came to a point where like the way he was processing it affected me and I too, like the way I was processing it affected him. So we saw sides of ourselves we didn't like. We did things that we didn't like that hurt each other. But overall, like we've gone to therapy, we've done the work to really focus on not only our relationship, but individually. And he's been my biggest cheerleader. His main concern is that, you know, he wants to protect me. So whenever he sees something that, um, might trigger me. He wants to protect me from and shield me from all that. But truthfully, like it comes down to me creating that safe space to where, you know, everyone around me doesn't have to fear that, you know, I'm going to follow that route too, because that is everyone's concern right now. I see it all the time with some of the discussions I've had. And he's just been the my rock in this entire thing. And I'm so thankful for him. That's so nice. Yeah. To have that support must just be incredible. Yeah, I mean, he does communicate, though. Like, it's hard being the partner of somebody that struggles with their mental health. And it's true. I do have to validate how he's feeling because Mm -hmm. if I were in his shoes and I'm seeing him cry all of a sudden and in specific, like recently, the last couple of months with my dad's passing, like I've, I've had those suicidal thoughts and I've gotten help for it. I'm, you know, trying to regulate that whole experience, but it's hard for him to see me go through that. And I have to give him credit for that. And we have been navigating as a couple 
how to openly communicate that without hurting the other one's feelings because in his uh, perspective, he's like, so am I not enough for you to want to live your life is how he um, takes that. And that's how I felt with my mom. So I totally understand it. But we communicate well enough to where we know that we're doing the right thing and we're taking the right steps in order to get through this. Yeah. Carling, is that your your dogs? Those are my dogs. Oh, those are your dogs. But I got so excited. I was like, yay. I, it's always my dogs. That like, <laughs> and it's so funny because I'm in like a sealed room and I try to prevent them from being hurt at all. And they still manage to, you know. Oh, that's right. Like, Mom, that. Mom, we're in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. But your story is so interesting. And it's such a unique perspective. Because I think when we talk about suicide and suicide prevention, it's black and white, you either are alive or you're not. And I think that something that doesn't get represented very much. And I think that you're doing a great job of educating people on is you know, the people that do survive a suicide attempt and what impact that has on them and their family and the community. And yeah, I I just find it really interesting. Thank you so much. I know like when my mom and I do talk about it a lot and like I said, mom, do you have like any interest in maybe like talking to like groups of people, like maybe like your group that you used to meet with at the church, like anything like that. And like, she's like, yeah, I do want to tell people that, you know, don't do this. Don't make this choice. There's always hope. Like yeah, she yeah. does regret that she made that choice. She mm-hmm. is fully aware that, you know, there's something different about her. Yeah. And that to me is very impactful. And especially with my own experience as well, where like, I'm very aware that I'm struggling with that. Mm -hmm. But I am seeking for ways to improve that and so that I can have, you know, quality of life. And it's just, you know, with my dad also passing in November, you know, with his attempt, like that just really put everything into overdrive for me. It's like, wow, I really need to do something about this. Like, I'm just so affected by it with both my parents now and i And now with my own experience where I'm struggling with those thoughts for the first time, like I need to really make a change. So that's where my passion in this whole situation comes. Obviously, I've been personally affected, but I just want to give people a beacon of hope with me and my siblings with how we're going to move forward with both of our parents in this situation to where we can help people and create that community of change to kind of just break that stigma to where people feel like there is hope and that it's no longer a choice because suicide is not a choice. And I stand Mm -hmm. by that. So, And do you feel kind of saying, did your dad die by suicide? He did. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. That one just like, I'm just like still struggling with that whole experience because my brother was the first one to find him as well. And I was the one that did CPR on my dad. And so it just goes back to like when I first shared my story about my mom on TikTok and people were like, well, that's selfish. You know, your, your, your mom doing that is selfish. And then the other side is like, 
you're selfish for saving your mom. That's her Mm -hmm. choice. Like, this is your choice. And to me, suicide is not selfish because exactly how you explained it, like somebody that has cancer, it's an illness. And just like somebody that has mental health issues can be translated into several different illnesses on the spectrum that have suicide as a symptom. And to me, I will never view it as selfish. And my mom was struggling. And at the time, her brain misfired. And she thought that that was the only choice that she had. And I can speak on that because I've struggled with that. Like my Mm -hmm. own thoughts to this day, like sometimes my brain will literally obsess about the idea where I'm just like, I, what am I doing here? Like, what's the point anymore? Like, I just can't, like, I don't want to feel this pain anymore. And it's just the pain that they carry. And like myself, I carry, like it becomes too much. And like, at that point, that's where I kind of flip my switch in a positive way in which I'm like, okay, let's research online, like what type of therapies and centers are available because my own personal experience, like I have actually never gone to like a psychiatric facility or treatment or anything Uh like that. Like a lot of people use the word grippy sock town and that alone is stigmatized as well because I know it varies from country to country, but the U S is not known for having great resources in mental health. So Uh For me, when I was talking about it with my husband, I've been on several different medications and I specifically said, I don't want to go the medication route because of all of the negative outcomes I've had with it. So for me, I want to try different modalities out there like somatic healing, uh, neurofeedback, something where I can kind of rewire my brain to where I'm not Uh having the physical symptoms I'm having and can regulate myself. And so we talked about it and he was very supportive. He's like, if you need to go to like some program, like let's just do it. And so that alone, like the whole limited options that, you know, people in mental health have to get resources is something that also needs to be kind of talked about as well. I know there are other creators on TikTok that have shared their experience with the, the failure of the system uh-huh. and specific to mental health. And it's really sad, but I think it's just important that since we have so many different outlets that if we talk about it, somebody is going to find something and share their experience and how they help, help, how it helped them. And maybe it could help other people. Yeah, absolutely. But do you have anyone ask you if you're angry with your mom? Uh, A lot of, yeah. Yeah. My husband does all the time with my parents in specific. And I did struggle with anger for my parents for a long time. Yeah. And I processed that and released it. Right now, my biggest issue is I'm struggling with the anger I have over myself where I feel like I kind of dropped the ball, which that's just a a part of grief where, you know, you're feeling what could I have done? What could I have done differently situation? Yeah. But in particular, I was just not happy with the relationship where it was with me and my dad and, you know, losing him the way that I did and seeing mm-hmm. him in his final moments like that. Like nobody deserves to go like that. 
No, I don't care oh how, you know, angry I was at him with the situation with my parents, but it's just something that I've been really having a hard time and I am, you know, openly communicating it. And even at work, I set boundaries and I tell, you know, my team that, you know, I'm struggling today. I need a mental health break. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your patience as I try and get situated and, you know, help you guys with your projects. And I do appreciate, you know, that. And I, it just comes down to open communication. Yeah. Well, what you're doing is incredibly important. Yeah. The work you're doing is incredible and so needed in this world today. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, even what you guys are doing with, you know, your own personal experiences with it as well. Like it's incredible, you know, all of the other uh, podcasts I've listened to on your specific one as well. And it's impactful what you guys are doing. And I got to give you a lot of credit about that because even today I had mentioned I was nervous about talking about it because I still am to this day even though I post, you know, on a socially public platform about what has happened, it is still hard for me to talk about it because Mm -hmm. of all of the judgment that and stigma and like some of the things I don't want to answer. And I do have a choice to set a boundary and be like, no, I'm not going to answer that. But yeah, yeah. it's just that I know my own limits. And like, I know there are certain things that can trigger me that I'm not fully equipped to regulate at this time. So like, Mm -hmm. that's why I kind of know my own boundaries and I don't post everything on there because there's so much more than just what I've shared publicly. It's so complicated. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where I use my anger in a um, good way, fighting for good, where like I advocate for my mom and people in her situation Mm -hmm. because those comments in the beginning really used to affect me because I didn't realize, well, this makes sense why like my intuition was saying, you know, don't talk about it. Like look at how people actually think and view that whole topic. Mm -hmm. And it just got to a point where I got angry and I'm like, no, that's not okay. Like my mom didn't feel how you guys are thinking. And no, there are other people that don't feel that way. And like, it's, it's interesting to me. Like there have been some comments where someone's like, well, usually suicide survivors are thankful they survived. And then the other side of that are people saying, well, the ones that didn't survive aren't there to comment. And that's where that whole dark humor comes into play. And that's how I've coped is the dark humor. But at the same time, like people just need to understand it's not an actual choice. Suicide's Mm -hmm. not a choice. It's a symptom. And that's how we have to look at it moving forward and treating it. I think a lot of those questions though do also come out of like curiosity but also they come out of fear because they're like well what if that happens to me what was the cause of it so then I can be careful that I'm not gonna you know that that's not gonna happen to me it's that's such a good point that you bring up because I literally was talking about this yesterday with my team is that I was saying you know both of us were saying that we like watching the show intervention And I'm always so curious about each person on that show. Like, how did they end up there? Like, what was that one thing that flipped their switch to go down that path? And mainly it's because I want to understand for myself and be aware of, 
not, you know, ending up there because I totally can. I've been to several different psychiatrists, psychologists. I've had one psychologist once tell me before that with my parent committing suicide that I have like a 25% chance now of doing the same thing. And I was just taken aback at that. I never went to that person again. I was like, wow, that's like a really staggering statistic and very eye-opening for me. But also I'm like, I've always gone back to that. And I'm like, so because I had that parent and now the other parent, is that Mm -hmm. like double now? So like I'm very aware and mindful of it in – What's been very um, beautiful to see is like growing up, all of my parents, like family friends to us, like because they know with what just happened recently with my dad, they will like check in on each of us. Like my best friend from like pre-K to now, her mom, I think, went to go to where my brother works for like dinner and like he sat with her and like it was just really nice to see that people are like checking in on us and making sure that we're okay. And it just Mm -hmm. is beautiful to see that people have a compassion to it because they know us as a family and know that we've been through a lot and that it can happen to anybody because suicide doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate person, color, gender, religious background, nothing it's a symptom so that's it's that type of community that we need to kind of create with uh compassion understanding and education I want to make an impact and do differently I want to break break that that generational trauma I just don't want to let my parents you know what they have done you know go in vain I want to I don't want to say use it, but I want to share my experience Mm -hmm. that my family had been through to impact others in a way to where they can make that change. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's complicated, but I think really like talking about it like this publicly is probably such a big first step or a step in this direction because it is complicated and we've never talked about it so much as this generation, I feel like. So yeah. You know, I think we're we're heading in the right direction, I hope. It yeah. it seems that way. And I'm yeah. very hopeful. Yeah. My yeah. gosh. Well, Denise, I appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty so, so much. I know it's, you know, we, we've said before, like, it's something that we're all really familiar with. And it can be something hard to talk about. So we appreciate it. No, thank, thank you, so you ladies so much. You guys have created a safe space for me. I know when I first came on, I shared that I was very nervous and you both were great and I do appreciate it. There was something that drew me to want to do this with you ladies in particular because I have been reached out by several other you know, groups, pages, podcasts, as you name it, to talk about it. But something in particular drew me to you both. Aww. And I'm I'm very glad that I actually went through with it and did it. And I couldn't be any more thankful and grateful for the opportunity to, you know, share my story with you ladies. Oh, my God. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. That's that amazing. So You're very yeah. welcome. Well, we hope that you have a good rest of your day in sunny Florida. <laughs> <laughs> And enjoy some of that sunshine on our behalf because it is very overcast and very icy outside right now for us. I definitely will.
Awesome. Thank- Alrighty. Well, thank you both so much again. And thank you again for what you're doing, you know, for the mental health space and your contribution in this impact we're trying to bring to this situation. So I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope you guys have a good one. Thank you. Thanks. You too. Thank we'll you. talk to you soon. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Hey, Bye bye. Hey, Michelle. Hey, Carling. Well, Denise, my God, I am always so appreciative when, well, of all of our guests, but like to be so vulnerable and raw uh-huh. and oof, it's a heavy topic and I hope everybody Very heavy. Sort of gives themselves some grace and the world is just in a whole lot of pain right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a struggle for a lot of people and... uh I don't know. Just try to do some things that make you happy. Yeah. I also wanted to say if we have any listeners in, do we say the Ukraine or just Ukraine? No, Ukraine. just Ukraine. Yeah. Right. That we are, I mean, not just listeners, but like everybody in Ukraine, like, holy cow, like, yeah. I hope you're okay and safe and it's awful what's going on over there. And yeah, it's just so interesting that we're seeing a war happen through social media. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's never been done before. So it's just, but of course there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. And you need to be careful of what you're reading and, and the videos that you're sharing because their sources might not be accurate or whatever. My heart is just broken for anybody who is from Ukraine, has family in Ukraine, and mm-hmm. even people who are in and from Russia because, I mean, they're facing, you know, they're literally being held captive in their own country and yeah. not given true information. And yeah, it's just really sad. If we want to talk about freedom. Yeah. Read the room, Canadian truckers protesting their freedoms. Right. Ah. Go to the Ukraine, go to Ukraine and, and see what it's really like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope oh, everybody wow. has a good week. I hope everybody Go and hug somebody. Unless hugging is not your love language, then don't. But go do something that speaks to your (laughs) love language. Yes, agreed. Take care of yourself. We're going to hang out tonight and we'll do something fun with all the kids. Yeah. And And we're going to manifest better lives for ourselves. (laughs) Maybe we should teach the kids about vision boards. Oh, yeah. We could get our old (laughs) magazines out and start making some vision boards. Kids, we're going to talk about manifesting our reality. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Funny. Well, we will keep this short and sweet, but we hope everybody has a really good and safe and healthy week and reach out if you need a friend. Ah, thank you. Yeah. And find us on all the socials. We are there oh, for right. you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Bye. Bye.